The Melting Pot. Hosted by Dominic Munkas. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot Podcast. It's Dominic Munkhouse. Today I'm talking to the founder at Dovetail Lab. Very busy lady, CEO and founder of a number of companies. She'll talk about some of that in more detail. She'll even talk about some of her time in corporate finance and her time just after leaving university. She was in Wandsworth Prison delivering teaching programs. Alex, welcome. I'm Alexandra Evis. I'm the founder and CEO of two companies because one was clearly not enough. One is a blockchain company. We use distributed ledger technology to increase interoperability of medical record systems and improve patient data sharing. And the other one is a spin-out from a statutory funded special educational needs school where I was a governor. Um, and it's a vocational learning technology which uses NFT technology and mobile devices. Why have you decided to do two businesses at the same time? That sounds mad. <laughs> yes, uh, it's completely bonkers. So the, um, the one that came out of the special needs school was never really intended to be a business. Um, I Many years ago when I was working in corporate finance, I felt a bit soulless, so I thought I would try and give something back to humanity and I volunteered to be a school governor and I was recruited by a, a really genuinely outstanding special needs school. I think it's the only six times outstanding special school in the UK and one of the things that I did as a governor was wander around and meet teachers and look at the, the different resources that they were using to, um, to teach and one of the teachers was teaching life skills and had come up with a really sort of neat little way of teaching kids how to brush their teeth or uh, make their beds and or make a cup of tea and it was little stickers that you tapped with your phone and they played step-by-step videos of how to do certain tasks. Obviously any of us that have ever used a YouTube video had potential beyond its current use so I encouraged two of the teachers to leave the public sector um, and, and try their hand at becoming entrepreneurs, evil capitalist entrepreneurs. And it's turned into a, a business and it's been going for a couple of years now. Um, and I've been sort of steering them in the right direction. But they do all the hard work. I am, I am simply at the tiller giving good advice where I can and sort of probably questionable most of the time. So that's great. Um, but it was, it was a sort of accidental business. And last year I exited another business um, which was using IoT technology to keep older and disabled adults in their own homes and was looking at on the problems we stumbled across there all the time was sort of really really poor data sharing even worse sort of between social care and, and healthcare space and was looking at sort of different technologies and blockchain was just becoming all the rage but actually 99% of the things people do with blockchain, you could do cheaper and uh, quicker with other technologies. Whereas actually, I think what we're doing is one of, the, one of the few, one of the handful of things that actually make very good sense with the technology. So it was a, a clear problem and, and what seemed like a good solution. So yeah, the NHS very kindly funded us 
to deliver a product and we thought we'd better set up a business to fulfill the contract. So it was one of those nice contract comes first, business comes second scenarios. You must have put a compelling case to the NHS for them to give you the, their money. Yeah, and so they were doing a call around some of the way they sort of sponsor innovation is they do sort of calls and one of the call was around general practice of the future and how general practice, what technologies we can invest in now to sort of revolutionise the way general practice works. So we responded to that. Actually, we what we proved in our six-month study was that putting medical records on the blockchain is a really bad idea. So what we decided after that is actually don't do that because that's not a great idea, but how can we still solve the problem using this technology and what are the reasons people don't share data now and how can we let everybody continue to use existing systems, whether that's an electronic health record or a personal health record on their phone or a digital health app and let data pass between all of those different systems. So kind of creating a virtual shared health record but do that in a in a secure and sort of compliant way so that it ticks all the information governance um, uh, boxes and uh, everybody's backsides are duly covered. Actually, the blockchain is very good for that. So that project continues. Does that mean sometime soon I will be able to share all of the data that I have about myself with my GP? Or Yeah, so the idea is that at the moment, your GP is the data controller so you're just a data subject so actually your medical history uh, effectively is controlled by the GP um, so we're kind of flipping that model on its head in that actually pushing the power back onto you as the patient and saying well you, you can control that data you can give explicit data explicit consent for that data to be to be shared and you can remove that consent as well if you want to and then the power's back in your hands um, and it becomes more than it sort of goes beyond consent it's more like a sort of demand or a request of actually I want you GP to send the data about my feet to my podiatrist or into my phone where I have a personal health record app and I want to use that data. Looking into your crystal ball Mystic Meg when do you think when do you think that becomes a reality? It's starting to become a reality. Uh, even the NHS is releasing its own app. It's a patient app, which supposedly will happen in September, but um, or this year. So we'll we'll see if if that is delivered. But it will certainly be soon, and that will have there'll be a sort of a, a single sign-on, a sort of citizen identity. So a bit like KYC in banking, there'll be the sort of a form of that, so you can. You know, take a selfie and take a photo of your passport and it knows you are you and then you can download the data onto your phone. I think we're probably a way off what we've got with on this it's kind of like the nascent stages of online banking where you could you could just look at the data versus yeah what you can do now and you can you know you can pretty much do all your banking online and all the different apps have sprung up that do various different different uh, sort of banking transactions. The same will happen ultimately with health data right now we're at the stage of just getting everybody to be able to look at their data what you can do with it after that is kind of the exciting bit yeah because once you've got a system set up where people can look then people can share their data with other apps or with other companies yeah absolutely i mean one of the big you know there's a lot of talk about ai in healthcare at the moment and one of the big problems we know people ai companies have is the only data they can get access to if they can get access to any is is anonymized data and actually anonymized data isn't always that useful 
you know you want to know what the outcome was in six years time or longitudinally so you want to be able to go back to that person and, and ask them and actually generally people certainly when it comes to healthcare are in favor of sharing their data but they want to know that it has been shared so if you can send a, no, a notification to somebody and say, you know, we're looking for a cure for cancer, are you happy to share your medical data with us to do that? I think 99.9% .9 of people would be absolutely fine with that. I mean, there's obviously, there'll always be some hardcore privacy believers, but, you know, ultimately the majority of the population agrees to anything in order to get the app that they want to use or the service that they want. I think we'd all contribute contribute something to the greater good if we were given the opportunity to it. What what always irks people is when their data is used without their knowledge. Yes, or somebody's making money from their data without yeah, their knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Why, I mean, why not monetize, monetize it? You know, it also gives research organisations or or private companies the opportunity to send you an education and say, you know, I want to do this with it. Can I pay you a fiver or? give you a £10 Amazon voucher if people want to do that that's fine right yeah it's fascinating I, I in a former life I I worked for a company that built and sold GP clinical systems and in the late 90s when I was there you know we envisaged a shared or interoperable clinical patient record you know for ambulance personnel being able to look at you know the clinical record for the patient because yeah. the patient may or may not be able to tell them what medication they're on or what have you and back then it was, you know, it was like, how would we do it? So people have been talking about this problem for at least the last 20 years, I suppose, when GPLE clinical systems just, it was just at the point where electronic pathology records were starting to become common. And it was like, well, what else yeah. could we do now? We've got some data transaction interchange going on. What, what, what else could we do? But it's fascinating. It's taken this long for it to become a reality or almost to become yeah. a reality. I mean, I actually think the sort of the data sharing outside the formal healthcare system will probably happen <laughs> before it happens within the NHS. So I mean, most patients you talk to just assume that if you get picked up in an ambulance and taken to hospital that they can see your medical record. But that it's just an assumption. But, you know, largely on the whole, that just isn't a reality. And there will still be the sort of technical interoperability problems between incumbent systems, but there are, we're moving towards international standards and uh, international sort of medical coding languages. So we're getting there slowly, 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 but surely. The NFC business that you have, yeah. what, what's the business model there? So we've had a few pivots. <laughs> Um, it's fair to say. So we started off because it spun out of a, a, a school. It was a sort of natural first instinct to try and sell to schools, which was difficult. <laughs> Both schools and then also sort of supported living, assisted living facilities. And that was very much on a focus to support life skills acquisition for people with differently abled people. That was, a, that was a really hard sell, just because the public sector is just really, budgets are on their, on their knees. Um, and if it didn't save, you couldn't justify that it saved money. It was, uh, you know, it, it's a nice to have, not a need to have. Um, it was really difficult. So actually, we've kind of amazingly got picked by IKEA on its sort of inaugural accelerator program. And lots of the big corporates are doing these sort of accelerators now. And I think they had 1,300 applicants and, and they picked 10 to go on a three-month accelerator program in Almhult, 
which uh, if anybody is Swedish is listening will say I pronounced it completely wrong, um, in Sweden, which is in the middle of nowhere in Sweden, but it is where uh, IKEA started, where Ingvar Kampner was from. Um, and we lived on a campsite with my two other founders in a wood cabin without running water for three months, going on a bicycle, an IKEA bicycle every day to IKEA. But it was interesting that IKEA sort of singled it out and and actually we explored lots of different use cases. The obvious one was obviously, you know, assembly instructions for flat pack furniture. But actually what we ended up doing is using it for workers at IKEA stores to teach other workers how to do things. So actually we what we now do is we we have a we license a platform so you can create so workers can create learning content and share learning content with other workers that's really good in any kind of industry where you learn in the flow of work so retail hospitality food and beverage manufacturing where you kind of you know e-learning and sort of sitting behind the desk is not appropriate where you actually kind of want to learn on the shop floor that is the business model now sort of it's it's nascent um but it's great being a mission-driven company it's investors are confused by it they don't really get the like you know, are you a charity? Are you a social enterprise or are you a business? And it's like, well, why can't we be both? Certainly a profit-making entity and, uh, and an entity that has a social impact. The great thing is it can be used by everybody. Our background, we're very passionate about people with learning disabilities being in the workforce and, and being employed. And hopefully that helps companies, our, our tools help companies do that. But actually, great for everybody and the same and the fact that everybody uses the same tool completely helps smash the sort of stigma around disability as well because we all need depending on the complexity of the task or when when we learnt it you know we all need help with how to use a photocopier or (laughs) or how to use a complex piece of machinery or how to assemble one of those big white bins in IKEA. Well and just the idea of even as an IKEA customer you know being able to see the video of how to without having to try and type that into a phone or or you know you mentioned food and beverage and you know one of the big things which is a real sort of debilitator in that industry is that staff turnover people who've just learned how to do everything then leave because on your on your first day or week people tell you lots of things and you remember 10 percent of it yeah that like knowledge transfer and reinforcement is amazing you know there's so many so many industries where you know your your star employee leaves and all their expertise is just gone with them you know big organizations you know like an ikea where you've got 400 stores across the world it's like the idea that you know bob in the edinburgh store can teach dj in the, the bomb in the mumbai store is that's just opening is i think that's kind of powerful as well is it like a wiki so can anybody upload content and edit content and comment on content and change it and create a workflow around new content for our corporate customers yes so it's the idea is any any employee can can use it and create content and then it's sort of sent for vetting um to an appropriate manager or learning and development team or it's different in every different organization and then once it's approved anybody in the organization can then can code a sticker and and share the learning content um but the 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 neat thing is because it links the sort of the learning to the location then it's like you learn the right thing in the right place at the right time 
that sort of democratization of content creation and, and being specific, the number of times people create something at the center of an organization, and by the time it gets to the edge, people are like, well, that's really helpful, but that's 12 months late and is completely useless. And just being able to do it, do it at the edge is just so vital to it being relevant and timely and, and as you say, location specific. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you've got, you know, version control as well. You can just, you can change the content, changes the content tag to those stickers wherever they are all over the world. So, yeah, I mean, just from a sort of continuity of training um, point of view, it's a great tool. You've gone, yourself, you've gone from a, a big, big companies to little companies, even if it's multiple little companies. What's the... What's yeah, your personal I, journey really, from sort of large corp, large corporate to, to small yeah, businesses? No, I've never, not really large corporate. So I was trying to calculate the other day. I was like, I don't think I've had a job for 15 years. I was trying to remember the last time I had a job. No, I did a kind of, I did a stint in corporate finance, but then I kind of set up my own sort of corporate finance little boutique as well. So that was kind of mine as well. I did the, you know, if you're not a socialist in your 20s, you don't have a heart thing and when I first left university my first job I taught life skills amazingly at the age of 21 in Wandsworth prison to the largest male prison in the country I was employed by the NHS what they were thinking uh, I have no idea um, because it was, it was absolutely oh. I thought relationship skills, because you've clearly got those age 21. I thought anger management, and I thought assertiveness and positive thinking to a, a, a bunch of very nice lads who had made uh, what I would call circumstantial criminal people that I guess made what I think is probably almost a rational decision of if you've got no education and you can't get a job and the guy on your estate has the pretty, who has the prettiest girlfriend and drives the nice car is, is the drug dealer. Well, you'd go and drug dealing seems like the, the most sensible job out there, right? So I can kind of see how most of them ended up where they were. But yeah, it was an interesting. People always say, oh, it must be really hard. I was like, it was the easiest job in the world. When people spend, young guys spend 23 hours a day in their cell, they get one hour out and, and, and they get to spend it with a 21-year-old girl. Like, it was, it was great. They, they, yes, miss. Thank you, miss. Please, miss. That was interesting. And then I worked for the char several charities um, for a while as well. And then, and then I turned to the dark side and totally flipped and did corporate finance for ages. So I've done a little bit of everything, but I've always wanted to do something good. But if you're still a what's the what, what's it? If you're still a socialist in your forties, you don't have a brain. That's right. So. <laughs> So profit and social impact together it is. But you left the business last year, didn't you? The Alcove, who were, yeah. again, profitable business, social impact. Yes, absolutely. At the beginning of well, March last year. That was a great business. It was really, it was having never had a technology business before. It was ambitious doing uh, software and hardware as a service. It was a very steep learning curve, and thank God we had an amazing CTO because because it would have been a much rockier ride. Um, I've the one thing I've learned is to always employ people cleverer than yourself, and you will do all right. <laughs> um, so that's my that's my rule of thumb, um, and have been helped out by that many times. 
and that goes on you know it's still going on my co-founder runs that now but it I think it goes from strength to strength. I remember when we talked about that some time ago, fascinating using sort of machine learning to see when you need an intervention in care of old people. Yeah, that's very bad language, Don. We don't call them old people, older adults. Um, Because nobody wants to to be an old, old person and we're all swiftly becoming one. So I think the message is important in that market because... Because ultimately, like I think, you know, nobody goes out and buys an, an old person product. Nobody wants to buy a stairlift or a walking stick. It's always kind of the view for that business is always like try and make it aspirational. It's like create something that people want to buy for themselves rather than have to buy that kind of aspiration led, not needs led. But how can we help you do the things that you want to do as you age rather than like, the depressing stuff um although obviously that's important as well but that was always kind of a big driver for us that we felt all the older adults kind of focused brands were really either sort of like pearly white teeth 50 year olds made to made up to with their hair sort of grayed out to look older or which was completely unrealistic or like close-ups of sort of frail hands and people bent over and looking sad and it's like oh god hate all this imagery technology is just i mean we're just at the bottom of the like hockey stick aren't we it is changing every day and it's quite exciting like harnessing the power to me harnessing the power of technology to help the people that that need it the most as you were talking about making advert aspirational i realized that i must be being targeted by somebody because i saw an advert recently uh, that said everybody is now b- buying walk-in baths and I realized that that is actually trying to use aspiration to sell a product to older adults that uh, can't climb into a bath. Why well, is being I, aimed I, at me? I have no idea. <laughs> I saw one the other day which I was like I thought it was a great idea it was like it's just a, like a body dryer so it's like a giant hair dryer that you just sort of step in so you don't need to use I was like that I don't know what the eco credentials are if that's any better than like using and washing towels but I quite like the idea of just like never having to use a towel again but also if you you know then if you're in a wheelchair or you're an older adult you don't have to you know that must be one of the worst things or the sort of you know having to have effects you know often the strangers provide instant care I like that. Or not, or taking it off the towel rail and realizing that you should have washed it yesterday because it's a bit smelly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you will always have the just steps out of the salon vibe. So look, when you look back over your career, if you got to do it all again, what would you do differently? Well, I don't believe in regret, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that path. Well, what have you learned recently that you wish you'd known back then? You know, I think ultimately the older you get, the more confident you get and the better you are at well the I think the less you care about what other people think, so you can be a bit bolder and braver in that. And I think probably yeah, that sort of level of self belief um would would be great rather than all the questioning. Also just I think sort of like from a fundraising perspective and then because effectively as a CEO you end up of a startup these days you just end up six months of every year fundraising which is quite painful <laughs> but the kind of I guess knowing how the begging bowl system works and and not being intimidated by it and working out that it's okay to ask for the money 
whether that's from customers or from investors straight off the bat would have been good and I think there's, there's definitely a formula which is I think become better now there's such a wealth of materials on the internet and really really good things of you know of how to of how to pitch of how to do your decks of you know of who to talk to of which which groups to go to but sort of I think that that's become so much easier and better these days and I think and also just with SEIS and EIS and all the great tax advantages that the, the government um, created in the UK that that is just much more viable now to go out and raise money and and do what you genuinely love doing I think that's the most important thing you've just got to certainly running your own company you've got to absolutely love going to work every day maybe they're like the eight years or so doing corporate finance I'd probably go back and and certainly shorten that period um of time <laughs> and do something yeah. you, do something you love doing more yeah absolutely that was too long doing that and now I'm like the oldest person in the office I was like damn how did that happen <laughs> If you always employ people younger than yourself as well, you will feel eternally younger. It's great. Smarter and younger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Are there any books you've read that you think people should read? Books you've given away or books that changed your life or books that you've read recently you thought were amazing? I just read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, um, who is the founder of Nike. And yeah, it's a, it's a great book really well told story and really interesting story and obviously we all know the outcome but that that was a that was a cracking read and also sort of quite emotionally sensitive for for a founder who you know that's basic can, can sometimes not be the best at the best at sharing the secret sauce definitely recommend that one I tend now to like to complete switch off and try to like and read absolute trash because it's like <laughs> mind mind chewing gum um it's a bit like sort of turning on strictly come dancing on a saturday night because i spend 99.9 percent of the time thinking about work and then it's nice just to just go completely brain dead uh for a while so that's that's a terrible admission but it's important to have a work-life balance um i'm not sure that reading trashy novels counts as life but um it's one of them what are your tips to to keeping balance then what do you what do you have to do so that life works well i think i'm pretty lucky in that i i got a fairly uh, an addictive but healthy pursuit um hobby which i took up when i was 30 whereas i when i went, went out of london and got on a horse which i like not, never done and got completely addicted and now i own two horses and don't live in london anymore well, I live in London in the week and I go to the, go home on the weekend to Suffolk and it's just complete like switch off find a hobby where you can't use a phone while doing it I think is like a, a really good tip something like I guess sailing it would be hard or any anything where you you've, you've literally got to have a digital detox and got to switch off your phone because it's really really difficult to just get away from notification culture now you're always on you're always working so having time when you've just you know it's like enforced weekly switch off time is really important thank you very much indeed for taking the time to chat to me this afternoon that's all right thank you for listening to the melting pot podcast 
please we're now on itunes give us some feedback and on stitcher and soundcloud that'd be fantastic and sign up to the newsletter over on medium.com slash foundry media you can sign up for the weekly newsletter and read the blog till next time goodbye the melting pot was hosted by dominic monkhouse and you can find out more about dom on linkedin just search for dominic monkhouse or his companies, Foundry Media or Foundry 51.